Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with KC Jazz percussionist, woodwind player, and composer, and also a great educator, Patrick Conway. He has been a fixture on the Kansas City jazz and music scene for quite some time now. These days, one of his main gigs is playing with Chris Hazelton's Boogaloo 7 at the Green Lady Lounge, along with many other gigs around the Kansas City metro. This cat brings a great deal of world knowledge to his approach on the bandstand and teaching. He's got great stories, a lot of jazz mileage, and he loves Kansas City. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So, Patrick, hey, thanks for taking a little time out to talk to me about your music and your life in music. I appreciate it. Sure, appreciate you asking. Absolutely. Let me go ahead and start off here and get an idea. I know you're a busy guy between, you just you got gigs all over the place and you're teaching. And, and I want to get an idea of just from you of a snapshot of what's going on with you. Well, I mean, I, I have sort of primary, really working with Chris, is one of the primary ones right now. Of course, the the Boogaloo Seven, and he just added me in on Thursday nights with his quartet through the end of the year. That'll end in January, but that's been a lot of fun playing with uh, him and Kevin Frazee and Matt Hopper uh, plus percussion. So that's uh, you know playing with Kevin's a blast and sort of stretching me into some different repertoire than I'm used to. So there's that, and uh, probably now People's Liberation Big Band of Greater Kansas City is an ongoing project, and we're uh, preparing for uh, the Nutcracker and the Mouse King, uh, which will go down December 10th and 11th out at Pulse Theater at Johnson County Community College. That's coming up. And ongoing work with them. We play once a month at the record bar, usually the first Sunday. I used to do more Latin jazz stuff when and salsa when Miguel De, De Leon was living in town, but he's moved to Phoenix. So that's a little more periodic. He tends to be around spring, summer, and fall. He'll be in and out of town doing activities, so we'll do some Latin jazz things and the occasional uh, larger salsa band activities, too. And then the other kind of ongoing thing that I do unrelated to the jazz world is uh, directing the community Balinese Gamelan Ensemble. We have here Gamelan Gunta Kasturi, uh, and that's uh, kind of an ongoing labor of love. We rehearse a lot a couple of days a week, regularly, and we're preparing for a spring concert uh, March 25th at Academy Lafayette. That'll be with our uh, teacher and family who are from Bali, but uh, they live up in Urbana, Illinois. So we've been, I, I picked a really uh, challenging piece to transcribe and teach the group, so we've been working on that and then trying to get the other repertoire together. So Cool, man. No, I dig it. I, I want to, I'm interested in where did you grow up? I was born in Independence, Missouri, okay. the land of Harry Truman. Right. And a fair amount of time there. We lived in uh, uh, Central California for a couple of years when I was a little kid, like uh, kindergarten and first grade, and came back. Mostly lived around Independence. We also spent about three years in Jefferson City. I think I was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade down there, and then the rest of the time in Independence, and I moved into Kansas City, I believe, in 1984, and have lived in the city since then, yeah. Okay, so 
How did uh-huh. you get the, How did you get the music bug when you were growing up? Well, my mom uh, was a musician. She uh, was a vocalist, an opera singer, and played viola, violin, and organ and piano. So she was my first teacher, my first piano teacher. Of course, that uh, didn't work out that great because I I didn't take uh, you know negative comments from mom very well. So we we did that for about a year, and then I switched to a different teacher. Of course, yeah, yeah, it's never good yeah. with the parents in the beginning. But yeah, it really came through the family um, and church. You know, a lot of musical activities and opportunities at church. And then, of course, at school, too. So, And I've always been kind of all over the map. I started out on piano and took up French horn for a while when I, I think, third through eighth grade. And then I took up bassoon when I was 11. Still play that. Started percussion in seventh grade, you know, traditional uh, classical percussion. Did study a little bit of drum set in my teen years. The one thing that um, I am interested in is when you were growing up, what kind of jazz albums did you listen to that were really <laughs> huge for you? Yeah, you know, and this is funny because I, I couldn't wait to tell this story because I think I was about 10 years old. My mom had the Smithsonian collection, you know, that multi-platter uh, set. And yeah. Of course, even at that stage, I was like, hmm. I, it's funny, I, I never was too much attracted to traditional jazz, probably to my detriment, but the first thing I did was go to the last record, the second side of that collection. That was, this was probably the first jazz I ever consciously chose to listen to. And guess what that tune was? Ornette Coleman's Lonely Woman. Right on. That's awesome. So, so this at ten years old, that was my first jazz exposure. Right on. <laughs> oh, I I forgot to mention earlier too a, a group that I've been working with uh, a lot in the last year or two is uh, Arnold Young's Rough Pet. I don't know if you're familiar with Arnie. Yeah. Yeah. So I've uh, you know that's been. So anyway, my my interest in jazz has tended more towards the avant-garde, or towards roots music, too, because at a certain stage, I got it, I really have been into Afro-roots music and world music, quote-unquote, even though I kind of hate that, but just, you know, music from other cultures. Well, did you always know that you were going to be a musician? Is that always kind of on... Yeah, early on. Uh, there, <laughs> there was a, a point, probably, I guess, maybe when I was around 11, 12 years old, I went from wanting to be a pro football player, which was very unlikely, to huh. wanting to be a musician. From that point, I kind of had decided that, yeah, this is what I'd like to do. So, yeah, I guess I did kind of have the bug early on. Yeah. Well, the one thing, too, that I noticed is that over your life, you've studied with all kinds of people. David Locke, you've studied with master drummers right. all over the world. I mean, you have you have an eclectic palette of ethnic brews that have kind of gone into who you are. Talk to me about your education and how key it's been for you, not only as a musician, but it has to influence the way you live your life and view the world. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, probably foundationally coming up in a pretty religious family, 
gave a spiritual foundation, I think, that's been there and continues for, for virtually anything and, and really informed somewhat. I mean, I, I came up through the traditional, you know, uh, music lessons, classical, mainly classical church music and more like pop music for me, not so much jazz, just because I, I think because of the instruments that I played. It wasn't a big call for bassoon in the jazz band at William Christman High School. You know where I went. And right. So I played a lot of classical music. I was in the case of Youth Symphony. Played percussion and bassoon in the Youth Symphony when I was in it. But 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 definitely the classical side. Believe it or not, I played some guitar and bass on my own and was writing songs heavily influenced by Neil Young. Yeah. For pop and... Uh, that angle of things, and uh, I moved out on my own, played in country rock bands for a couple of years, and decided to go back to school, and I went to the conservatory and spent years there. A lot of playing. Uh, simultaneously started playing uh, accompanying dance classes. That sort of got me into the world percussion thing, and then had opportunities to study, you know, locally with people. There, were, there was uh, a Marielito Cuban here in town who just passed away a couple of years ago that I spent close to 30 years hanging with and learning Afro-Cuban. Really, my interest was in African music. And that somewhat informed by uh, being very disturbed with our history as a nation and its foundation of being built on genocide and slavery and almost feeling a, a necessity or obligation to learn about, you know, people who have been, you know, downtrodden, mainly the uh, African route. I probably could stand to study more about the native cultures. But that's kind of what helped me into African music, along with being very moved by it, in that direction. Um, but still an interest in modernist, because I, I got my degrees in composition from the conservatory, bachelor's and master's. So I always had an interest in modern music, friends, intuitive music, improvisational music, but not necessarily from the the traditional jazz side. Well, and, and, you know, speaking of formal education, you got your master's degree at UMKC. What was it like, you know, that's kind of a central hub these days for a lot of musicians that come out and hit the scene. What, oh, yeah. what, what, what was your time like there? Well, I was there kind of mid-80s to the early 90s. So, you know, it's weird. There was a jazz program there, but it, it was probably definitely not as, quote-unquote, accepted as it is now as a standard part of education, especially the conservatory tends to be Eurocentric. There were a lot of opportunities. I was lucky to be – I studied with Gerald Kemner, much more of a traditionalist than Jim Overly who uh, kind of was more open. So I, we really could explore what we wanted to as composers with their guidance, you know. So there were – and there were there was just a lot of stuff going on in town at that period. You know, uh, there was a real activist culture, like Big Band Buffet with Mark Manning and Annie Winter and uh, lots of – stuff going on, uh, Cafe Lulu, there was sort of this cafe culture and lots of different kinds of music 
in theater. The Human Observation Lab was kind of crucial in that period, run by Leo Weatherill and crew downtown that was uh, oriented towards performance art. I was involved with that. Stimulus and response company. The one thing that's very clear from you since you were 10, Ornette Coleman is not what you would call your straight-ahead kind of jazz guy. There's obviously an odd bent in you. You played snuff jazz. You've done a lot of different things that aren't standard jazz, so to speak. What made you kind of bend your arc towards that direction of being more experimental? I, boy, that's hard to yeah, I don't. It, it's got to be more of an intuitive attraction. And certainly now, you know, playing with Chris, we're doing a much more standard type of thing, but it's so rooted in the African Afrocentric vibe. You know, it's like I can plug my my thing into that. Yeah, um, you know, it's just an intuitive thing. Probably uh, studying composition, you're always generally going to be leaning most people towards experimental and modernist types of things. So in my connections with jazz stuff, it went that direction. Early, probably my earliest opportunities going towards jazz were through uh, like Second Line New Orleans stuff with Arnie. We had a band called the Necessity Brass Band. At the same time, we did like freaky out jazz stuff. And, and also like rootsy. So it's weird. I, you know, I have like this interest in the rootsy, especially African thing, but also the avant-garde. Of course, I love stuff like, uh, you know, Famadou Don Moye, the art ensemble of Chicago, that, that whole AACM vibe. I was just listening to a lecture by uh, Anthony Braxton talking about what he's up to lately, too. So, And I know that's a stretch for most people to connect with that stuff. It's not easy listening. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely it's out there, it's necessary, and, yeah, I dig it's it. It's um, part of the, the, the experience of, of life, and, you know, it's all good. I love doing the stuff with Chris. You know, I'm like in there playing congas on. Uh, is it is it on a misty morning? Is that the the Tad Dameron? Yeah, 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 yeah. And those are beautiful. Uh, those are beautiful tunes too. It's all the the richness of uh, human experience to me. I'm I've kind of come to that uh, realization more with age. Now I just hit my 55th birthday uh, about a couple of weeks ago, so. It's like it's a continuous process of becoming, you know, in my estimation. I agree. I totally agree. It's amazing how age can increase your perspective and make you do things you never thought you would have done even a decade or two ago. It's it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I guess that's when they always say wisdom, the only real way you get wisdom is being around on this planet long enough to get it. So, um right. It, it's a good thing. So let me ask you this. You know, you've traveled. You know, you've been to Cuba. You've been to Bali. You've been to a lot of places. What is it like to see those places and come back to Kansas City? How does it How does it help your brain and your music? Well, of course, there's the, the opportunity to experience other culture firsthand. But I think one of the primary things in going to a place like Cuba 
in Bali was it was great as a white male who are you know like the the uh, masters of the universe in our world to experience being a minority. Really, I think that was kind of critical. And it's funny, I spent a month in Cuba. I also spent a month in Bali. But when I came back to Kansas City post Cuba trip. I really felt like I'd landed in some kind of alien landscape because the whole life down there was much different. And I I got to spend a couple of weeks in Santiago de Cuba, which is the old capital of uh, Cuba, and then Havana, which is, you know, the more modern metropolitan area. Well, the the first two weeks in Santiago really was amazing because, it was. I felt like I was on top of a huge magnetic thing, and everybody seemed like they were psychic, and there was this deep vibe there that was very heavy. And even just going back to Havana, everything lightened up and was a little more recognizable. Yeah, my experience. But then coming back to it, it was a real adjustment coming back to America after that because it's just a whole different uh, protocol for the way people are, and especially in terms of what I was connecting to, which is the African cultures within Cuba. And Bali, same thing, you know. I mean, I I was not uh, disciplined enough to learn Bahasa Indonesian before I went, so, you know, there was this communication barrier somewhat, Though people like to practice their English on you, but uh, yeah, that that was an intense experience just because I spent the month of the the Bali Art Festival, which is an ongoing month long festival of art, music, and dance. Uh, so I just got to experience tons of of music and dance and creative uh, expression from that culture during that month, everything from hyper-traditional to ultra-modernist, they're, they're all over the map in terms of what they do. thing, you know, you, you spend a month plunked down someplace for your, the minority, and especially at that time, that was 2006, and it was just after there had been a couple of bombings over there, so tourism was way off. There were not very many white people there at all. Without a doubt. Let me ask you this. In 2012, you got the the Charlotte Street Foundation Performing Arts Fellowship Award. What was that like? That that seems to be a pretty big deal here in Kansas City. How did that feel? I was shocked. I had no idea at all that I had a chance of getting it. And, you know, in, uh, prior to 2012, you had to be invited to apply, which I had done in 2011. 2012, so, you know, I get a call from David Hughes. He's like, you got it, and I was just shocked. You know, I, I had felt good about what I presented, and it was a time of, you know, just coming out of a lot of creative juice that had gone on for me at that time in terms of producing work from, you know, a big uh, interdisciplinary gamelan piece and uh, some Latin jazz tunes that I had written for uh, uh, Miguel de Leon's uh, jazz quintet and also tunes I had just written for the People's Liberation Big Band. So I had this variety pack, and I think that was attractive. And then people were sort of 
I, I got the impression that they felt uh, good about my dedication to the Gamelon project as a community-oriented thing. So, yeah, I was just shocked. I didn't expect to win, of course. Yeah, it was very exciting. And I, I honestly felt I was a little bit in this vibe of, like, I'm not worthy. There were so many yeah. who deserve it more than me. And, you know, but <laughs> you just take it and... Yeah, provided an opportunity for me to create some new work with Heidi Van, who was the other recipient that year, and we we did a collaborative piece. You know, we come from such a rich jazz town. I mean, we're one of like four or five towns in the whole world that has had such a history of jazz here. If you could go back in time at a time machine and see a show, where are you going and who are you going to see? Is it going to be here or are you going somewhere else? Oh, man, I would love to to be able to drop in to 18th and Vine before Melvin Purvis came to town, you know. <laughs> and God, like, hear some of the Kansas City jazz from from that area, era when stuff was just cracking. I mean, there were uh, we were a major stop on the hub of traveling acts, and, yeah, man, I can't imagine being able to go here Charlie Park. I, I would love to... I think I'd like to drop into the foundation. If I could drop into the foundation when he popped through and played Cherokee and 12 keys and then packed up and walked out. That would be, that would be really nice. He's mine. That would be, that would be wonderful. Let me ask you a generic question. Why do you love jazz? Because it's a complex, to me, jazz is taking the harmonic tradition to its apex, and I have the greatest respect for these guys who can, like, oh, my God, navigate changes at all, but but nonetheless complex changes. It's uh, an improvisatory music of the moment, and to me uh, has a highly spiritual element for a lot of people. It, yeah. It represents the human experience developing to higher states of consciousness and being through the vehicle of music. And I find that incredibly attractive and open. You know, it's without borders. You know, I, I guess I lean more towards the non-traditional attitude of the definition of jazz, you know, as being an improvisatory music. And, and what, whatever elements, however you want, decide you want to explore it. In a traditional, I mean, God, there's plenty of, of room to work through the, the rooted tradition of, you know, harmony and, uh, but God, it's rich, you know, and it's a blend of, of, uh, European and African things. To me, it's a beautiful thing that came out of a very negative, potential the the phoenix that rises out of this horrific thing of slavery and something beautiful came out of that it's in it's one of the ironies of life you know but a beautiful certainly <laughs> totally right let me ask you this everyone has a version of who you are your family your friends those that you play for in the audience at the green lady and beyond but when you wake up who do you think you are <laughs> oh boy that's a tough question i'm i'm like combination of all my elements and trying to take each day and progress 
you know, it's an ongoing struggle in a lot of ways for me and probably is for everybody, you know, in your internal world. People look at from the, I think people might see a happy-go-lucky guy, you know. I My life is great. I have a beautiful, wonderful wife. And to me, a life is as good as it's been. And I hope it get, keeps getting better. So, yeah, I guess I, I wake up each day and, like, faced with my situation and tasks that I've set for myself, trying to progress and uh, ascend, you know. That's a great way to kind of wrap everything up. Patrick, thanks for opening up about your music world and, and what you're doing at Kansas City. It's great stuff, man. I always enjoy seeing you live and hearing that collaborative jazz magic. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Pat for his time, his honesty, and all of that great music that he's given the KC scene. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.